Hello, my name is Artemis Votiado and this is Our Histories, the podcast of the LSE's International History Department. In today's episode, I am talking to Professor David Stevenson about the First World War, why it lasted as long as it did, why it ended when it did, and why 1917 is a pivotal year in answering these two questions. But first, I ask him about the centenary and whether he thinks it was given due recognition in the UK. In the UK, I think the government has got the balance about right. What the this is, goes back to David Cameron's speech back in 2012, which 2013, I think, which laid out the foundations for the centenary and the sort of framework. But the key points were that there were going to be six benchmark events running through from August 2014 to November 2018. Those were organised by the government. But apart from that, the government left a lot to private organisations and civil society to plan it, and that's, there's been a very considerable response to that, remarkable in many ways. But what the government hasn't tried to do is to lay down lines of interpretation. They've seen it as their business to provide a framework within which different organisations, unofficial organisations, could commemorate as they choose. And I think that that was the right way to do it, and it's worked pretty well. My feeling is on whether there's been over-commemoration, possibly on the side of the BBC, um, who just started off by planning one of their most ambitious ever sets of schedules. And I think there was an extraordinary number of hours scheduled for the programming contained commemorating the centenary and what I think was striking was a decline in public interest after about the first six months and then periodic revivals for example at the time of the Battle of the Somme and the Battle of the Armistice but overall I think the BBC planned for more commemoration scheduling than was actually needed or than the public were willing to absorb. Did you find that British commemoration again Mm. was inward looking or did it take into account the European context in which the war went on? I think the big centenary events tried hard to bring in the European context, even the one on the Battle of Jutland, which is one of the six milestones of the major naval battle of the war. That took place off the Orkneys, but Scapa Flow is where the British Grand Fleet was, was anchored for most of the war. But they did bring in German participation, though on a fairly uh, unobtrusive level. Of course, they also tried hard with the armistice commemoration itself um, to bring the German president in to the uh, key commemorations at the Cenotaph on the morning of the 11th of November and at Westminster Abbey in the evening. The Battle of the Somme commemoration was very much, very, very visibly an Anglo-French thing, which is absolutely right because the French played a major part in the battle. The Germans were rather less evident in that and the, the, the Passchendaele commemoration in 1917 was centred at Ypres and there was very substantial Belgian participation. So I think the government has tried hard, and it's also tried hard to incorporate an equality, diversity, diversity, inclusion agenda. And uh, I think that's worked on the whole quite well. There's there's been a lot, for example, on the role of black minority and ethnic soldiers in the British Empire forces. Uh, And there's been a fair coverage, particularly in 2018, of the role of women in connection with the representation of the People Act and women over 28 getting the vote. A lot of the focus is usually on why the war started, whether Britain was right to enter. So Mm. a lot of the debates that we're having date Mm. back to the war. But from what you're Mm. saying, it looks like we've moved on and we do take into account other factors as well. Well, I hope so. The 2014, much of the BBC scheduling was about why the war started war guilt and so on, which, which are old questions. Uh, but they're questions that have not lost their interest, I think, because 
one of the things that I was involved in was I was on the academic advisory committee for the new 1914-1918 galleries at the Imperial War Museum. Before they designed those galleries, they did a, a questionnaire for the prospective audience and asked what were the questions that people most wanted to see answered. And the one that far away stood out by a mile was, uh, was why the war started, which in fact is a very difficult thing for the museum to cope with because it's very, you can't use the kind of artefacts that the Imperial War Museum has to present much of an explanation about why the war began. So that, that gave them a lot of trouble. Though in the end, I think they came up with a reasonable solution to it. But it's interesting that that, that was still by a mile the most important question that people hope to, hope to help have answered by, by coming to the Imperial War Museum galleries. In your latest book, you look at the end of the war, towards the end of the war, and you take an interesting approach in that you look at a single year and the mm. events that yeah. took place. Has the way that you think about the end of the war changed, either in recent years or as a result of writing this book? Not radically. I think... I wrote the book partly because I wanted the opportunity to research in depth and to answer myself questions that are long established, really, in the agenda of the war. But what I also hope I've brought out in the book is the, is the interconnections between them. As one of the challenges, if you like, is writing about a single year. It's, it's a very, very crowded year in which a great deal happens. They're the sort of standout events, of course, the two Russian revolutions and American intervention. Um, but there are a lot of other major things that happen. For example, Chinese intervention in the First World War in August 1917, which was going to have a very big impact on the development of Chinese history and Chinese nationalism is often overlooked from a Europe-centered account. But there's, there's a tremendous amount going on. Also, the, the major peace feelers, the major attempts to end the war by negotiation happened in that period. One of the things that I did want to look at that period for was to look at the question of why the powers on both sides remain committed to, the offen to offensive strategies, even three years after the war began, when there's abundant evidence that offensives usually end indecisively and with huge casualties. 1917 is a good year to look at for that from the point of view of evidence, because there was much more debate by 1917 before the major offensives took place, and that's left a documentary record from which we can reconstruct some of the forces that persuaded military commanders to recommend continuing offences and governments to persuade themselves that they had no alternative but to keep approving them. Were there any real opportunities to start the process of breaking this impasse before 1917? It was difficult before 1917, um, partly because the home fronts are much more solid. One of the reasons for studying 1917 is that there's much more evidence of, a, of an internal debate on, the, on all of the major home fronts than there had been previously, and the Russian Revolution does more than anything else to galvanize that. But there are other things as well, including deteriorating economic conditions in nearly all of the main countries. Food shortages are becoming serious. Inflation is, is moving ahead of, uh, of wages. So I think it's a combination of economic factors with the uh, huge casualties, the still not clear how the war is going to be ended and governments seem to be getting deeper and deeper into the trap rather than finding a way out of it. Those things coming together with the impact of the Russian Revolution, the example of an intransigently opposed movement, a movement that was intransigently opposed to the war in the end seizing power in a major country. All of those things make this a much more volatile climate. Up until 1916-17, yes there were peace feelers but they're not very serious or sustained. Most of the big attempts to end the war by, 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 by compromise, either public or secret, happened between February and November of 1917. You mentioned the huge casualties, and three years into the war by 1917, yeah. and mm. the death rates were known. So why do people keep supporting the war? Because there was 
general public support for the continuation of it? Well, partly because the casualties were so high. So this, this is the trap, if you like, that um, by the time we've got into 1917, millions of people have been killed. Both sides have had hundreds of thousands of casualties. And um, one of the, the problems for governments at that stage is then if they're going to end it by some sort of compromise, how are they then going to persuade, persuade to their publics that you know, their, their husbands and sons have died in enormous numbers and the achievement is only a compromise? when governments on both sides have been arguing since 1940, and one of the most consistent lines of justification have been that only a decisive victory would produce um, a, a, a lasting solution, and that a compromise peace just means that the war will have to be fought again in 20 years' time, and that the next generation will have to go through the same kind of horrors or worse from the, what that generation is having to go through. So, I mean, that, that's part of the answer. It's not a whole answer. Another thing that's very important is that people didn't know at that time how long the war was going to go on or what the final total casualty bill was going to be. So given you've already had enormous casualties, the question is whether you go on for another six months in the hope that the next offensive will finally deliver the breakthrough that's been promised. You say in the book that without American entry, the mm. best the Allies could have hoped for was mm. uh, an unfavourable draw. What would that look like? Yeah, this is an important point. I often find talking to... British audiences, that they, they don't understand the importance of the Americans and they, they think the Americans came in late and their contribution was minor. In fact, the contribution was essential to the Allied victory in November 1918. If you can, if, I mean, I don't like counterfactuals, but I think you run a fairly plausible counterfactual where the Americans don't come into the war in April 1918 because the Germans don't embark on unrestricted submarine warfare against Allied and American shipping. If the Americans had stayed out, I think you can assume the February Revolution in Russia would have happened anyway. Tsar Nicholas would have fallen. The, rev the mutinies in the French army in the summer of 1918 would have happened. Summer of seven, summer 17 would have happened anyway. We know that Britain was in a very serious economic crisis and unable to finance for very much longer its um, imports from the United States. So put all that together, you can see major crises affecting almost every one of the Allied powers. And on the other hand, the Germans and Austrians being willing to do, willing for a compromise peace and to try and stop the war at that point, because in many ways, if the war had been settled in 1917, it would have been negotiated with the Germans occupying North Belgium and northern France and holding key territorial assets, and the Allies didn't have anything of comparable importance. So the kind of map of geography of the war, as of 1917, still favours the central powers, and the Allies are very well aware of that. So that's my ground for saying, if you like, that the most likely outcome scenario if the Americans had not come in would have been some kind of compromise peace in which the Germans and Austrians would have held the key advantages. So why do the Germans pursue unrestricted submarine warfare if it's obvious that it's very likely, as it did, bring the US into the war on the side of the Allies? Yeah, the Germans knew it was likely to bring the Americans in. They were warned by that of their diplomats, the civilian leaders accepted it, even their military and their navy accepted it. But their assumption was that if you pursued unrestricted submarine warfare, which is, by the way, allowing the submarines to torpedo without warning, ignoring international law, ignoring the American protests, but their calculation was that they could raise the tonnage sunk per month to such a level that the British would be forced to surrender within about five months. That's the argument that's put in something called the Holzendorf Memorandum, which comes from the chief of the German uh, Admiralty Staff, Sir Germany's chief naval planner. If that happened, if a Britain was forced into some kind of surrender, then even if the Americans were in the war, essentially the Allies would have lost. The calculation was also, Holzendorf boasted, that the if the Americans tried to send troops, the U-boats would just sink the troop ships. 
which turned out to be completely unrealistic because not a single American outward-bound troop ship is sunk by a U-boat in 1917-1918. Of course, American entry was essential, but you say that Woodrow Wilson did not want a smashing Allied victory. Why was that, and how did it affect American strategy once into the war? Well, Woodrow Wilson was extremely reluctant to get drawn into the war, and uh, part of this is personal and humanitarian. I mean, he remembered the American Civil War. He was from the South. He was been brought up in Georgia, so he remembered the Union troops devastating the South of the U.S. in 1864. He has a personal horror of war. That's intensified because he sends American troops to intervene in Mexico in 1914-15, and there are casualties then. He has a Christian conscious about conscience about all of these things. So we have lots of examples of him telling everybody around him about how much he hated the prospect of taking the country into the war and thousands of young men being killed and American households being bereaved. So I think it's a last resort for him, but one of the things that reconciles himself to American entry more than anything else is the idea that at least if America comes into the war, it will have a key seat at the peace conference table and will therefore be able to produce the kind of peace that he wants to see which is essentially a compromise piece, which is geared towards international organizations, a League of Nations, disarmament, open diplomacy, a number of things are necessary to kind of change what he saw as an evil balance of power system, imperialist system, to produce the war. The only grounds on which he can reconcile himself to the idea of America coming into the war is that it should rein in the ambitions of both the British and French on the one, and Italians on the one side and the Germans on the other and to produce a new kind of system based on collective security rather than the old balance of power and arms race model. Was a seat on the uh, peace table the reason why the other countries that you, you talk about in the book, China, Greece, Brazil, also entered the war? Well, it's very important for China um, because the, the, what the Chinese have to worry about is Japanese encroachment on China, which was happening on a big scale from 1914 onwards. Remember, the Japanese had entered the war on the Allied side in 1914. And a principal reason for that was to take control of the territories that the Germans had previously occupied in northern China. The Chinese want them out. So that's one of the reasons why the Chinese want representation at the peace conference table. Though there are also other factors, in particular the Chinese government in Beijing was hoping for allied loans to enable it to get more con better control over China itself, because there's an incipient civil war in China from 1916 onwards. Greece is rather similar. I mean, Venizelos is the key, key personality here, is the Greek prime minister, and uh, who's in conflict with the king, who wanted to keep Greece neutral. Um, but Venizelos has very extensive ambitions for Greek expansion in the Aegean area and become the dominant power in the eastern Mediterranean. And he thinks having Greece in the war and having a seat at the peace conference table is vital. Brazil, no, it's not so clear. Brazil is more remote from the conflict, but Brazil is brought in essentially as America was brought in at one level by the German submarine attacks on neutral shipping. So a, a set several British Brazilian steamers are sunk and there are casualties. And you can see step by step the Brazilians moving away towards breaking off diplomatic relations and then eventually deciding to go into the war, largely a result of the submarine attacks on Brazilian shipping. Um, but once the Brazilians were in, then the peace conference actually became quite important and Brazil has a, a founding role in the formation of the League of Nations and is, I think, one of the first members on the League of Nations Council. The other key event that you talk about is the, is the Russian Revolution. Did the Allies foresee the Russian Revolutions in 1917? No. They knew that the political situation in Russia was extremely difficult and uh, intense, and there's a lot of opposition to Tsar Nicholas II. You can see this in the diplomatic dispatches that are coming 
uh, into London and Paris in the winter of 1916-17. But even allowing for all of that, the Allied war plan was to try to win the war in the spring of 1917 by a concerted offensive by the Russians attacking in the east, while the British and French attacked in the west and the Italians attacked in the south. They'd, they'd done this in spring 16 and they wanted to renew the model in spring 17. So Russia's contribution to that was essential if that w war plan was going to succeed. And their assumption was that that was what was going to happen. But somehow or other, the Tsar would be able to keep the show on the road long enough for the Allies to achieve decisive successes against the Central Powers in spring 17. So, I mean, they, they knew that there was a lot of opposition to the Tsar, they knew about the Rasputin affair, they knew about the growth of opposition from the Liberals in the Duma, and they knew about the growth of working-class opposition, but they, they didn't think it was going to come to a climax as soon as it did. And rather similarly in the autumn with the Second Revolution, when Lenin and the Bolsheviks seized power, that also essentially caught the, caught the Allies by surprise. Uh, though again, they knew that Kerensky and the provisional government were in terrible trouble and very much uh, under siege on the domestic front. And what is the reaction to the Russian Revolution? Well, it depends which side you're looking at, but from the, from the point of view of the Allied side, to begin with, they had hopes that it would be like the French Revolution of 1792, which would encourage French patriotic resistance against Prussian and Austrian invasion. It soon turns out not to be like that, and then there was a good deal of anger, I think, on the Allied side and a feeling that the Russians were deserting them. Even though the provisional government under Alexander Kerensky stays in the war, the planned Russian spring offensive gets postponed until the summer, until June, and then when it takes place, it's, pretty, it's brought to halt quite quickly by, by mutiny among the Russian troops. So essentially the Russians are still in the war and they're still keeping a lot of troops on the Eastern Front, but they're not attacking. Then of course after the Bolshevik Revolution, um, in, uh, in the, the October Revolution, which happens by the Western calendar in November, the new government under Lenin and Trotsky concludes a ceasefire and then a separate peace in March 1918. So there's a strong, strong feeling in many, many sectors of opinion on the Allied side that the Russians have betrayed them. On the German side, of course, it's viewed quite differently, but the Germans don't know how quickly the Russians are going to disengage from the war, and they would like them to disengage much faster than they, in fact, choose to do. Some of the famous actions that the Germans take, like Len sending Lenin across from Switzerland via Stockholm to Finland and then back to Petrograd in April 1917 in a so-called seal train. This isn't a German attempt to encourage the disintegration on the Russian home front, which eventually does happen, of course, but it takes longer than the Germans expected or wanted. Why doesn't the war end in 1917? Well, there are many answers to that, but the bottom line is that both sides still thought they could win though for different reasons. Yeah. Um, the, the Allies are vital for the Allied side as the Americans coming in. The, the Americans giving economic aid, giving naval assistance, giving financial assistance, um, giving above all hope. But with the Americans in, the Allies can see some prospect that eventually the war will be moving in their favour, even if for the moment there's a long sequence of disaster and disappointment. On the German side, obviously, the countervailing factor is the Russian Revolution, which similarly gives the Russians the hope, the Germans the hope, that they can move troops across from the east to the west in order to stage some kind of breakthrough offensive before the Americans arrive in strength, because the American military build-up is very slow. So these two new factors, if you like, act as sort of counterbalance each other and give each side reasons to think that if they carry on a bit longer, they can still achieve a victory. That's the most important thing, but given that both sides still think they can win, this then means that neither side is willing to make the sort of concessions that are needed for a compromise peace to be achievable. 
And it's also important for rallying public opinion on both sides, so that although the home front becomes much more fragile and much more volatile and disputed, contested in 1917, in the end it will be fair to say as a generalisation that the forces of people in favour of carrying on continue to outnumber the forces who are in favour of an immediate compromise peace. Is that true for Britain in particular? Yeah, it's true for the UK. I mean, obviously we don't have opinion polls, so these things are difficult to generalise about. But one of the things I've done since doing this book is to look at res- do some research on the strike movement in Britain. The largest strike in the UK takes place in May 1917. It's an engineering strike. It goes on for three weeks. A large part of the engineering industry shuts down. It does interrupt supplies to the front. It is brought to an end. The government has to make concessions... But the essential point about the purposes of the strike is not an anti-war strike. It's not, de- decided, it's not intended to overthrow the government or to establish Soviets like in Russia or to force the government to make peace. What it's directed at is more limited objectives. Some engineers have been called up and sent to the army. Food prices are going ahead of wages. These are the sorts of things that the strikers are concerned about. And if those, if you like, more immediate material grievances can be satisfied, then they'll continue to return to work and, and in fact, eventually did. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there are big questions that remain to be answered when it comes to the military history uh, of the great powers, or have we moved on? Some of the less well-known theatres of war still need a lot of research. For example, the Caucasus. There's, There's about one new modern study that that's... It's actually in the, in the Caucasus between the Russian and Turks that the, the, the main, most serious defeats of the Turkish Empire happen. That defeat, of course, is going to have major consequences in the Middle East. There's still more work to be done on the Russian front and on the Eastern front using Russian archival materials. The standard work on the Russian front was done years ago, really, by, by Norman Stone using mainly Austrian and German sources and Russian printed sources. There has been work done since then, but I think there's still scope for more. But I think the thing that really needs to be done, the, the priority, as I see it, is, is the economic history of the war, and the political economy of the belligerents. Just why exactly does the German home front collapse in 1917-1918? What, what is the impact of the blockade? How much is it due to the blockade? How much is it due to inflation and mismanagement of the German war economy? There are big questions there that I don't think have been satisfactorily answered. But even in Britain, actually, a lot of work still needs to be done, done on the home front and how the production miracle was, ha- was achieved, that the British are able to move between 1914 and 1917 to eno- and expand enormously their war industries. We know the outline of the story, but there's a lot of detail that needs to be filled in. These things are really important for the outcome of the war. So would you say that, again, the military history, mm-hmm. there is no real room for revisionism, and at least when it comes to the Western Front... Because we do have a very good picture of what happened. Well, we've had a lot of revisionism. The picture looks very different from what, what, what the, the, the way, shall we say, 40 or 50 years ago. A lot of very important research has been done on the role of the British Army on the Western Front. Less has been done, actually, on the other armies, though we've begun to have serious research on the French Army. There's still more work that needs to be done on the German Army and have why the German Army was so effective in resisting the Allied attacks for so long. And that requires de- detailed study of German tactics and strategy of the kind that has now been done for the British Army. But I think the sort of British military historians have in many ways done, done a better job, partly because the Western Front has been so central, of course, to British popular memory of the First World War. There's been a much stronger animus, if you like, against military history in France and in Germany, partly, partly for political reasons. And 
that's meant that although some good work has been done on the French and German armies, they haven't been researched as thoroughly as the Britain as Britain and the British Empire ones. So there, there is there is still more to be done, but people need to learn languages and go into the foreign archives. I wanted to end with a question about what should we keep remembering from the First World War, because to mm. non-historians it might seem irrelevant, especially now yeah. that's over yeah. 100 years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what would you say should we keep remembering? Well, I say answering again from a British perspective, yes, it, it's over 100 years, and of course all the participants in the war have now died, um, so we don't have that direct personal connection with it in the way that we did. So you would expect that at some point it will become more like the Crimean War or the Napoleonic Wars. These are things that are still still remembered, but uh, but not on the same scale, not, not with the same regular public commemoration. But I don't think we're there yet, and uh, I think that it will be interesting to see what happens in, 19, in 2019 and in 2020, whether the, um, the 11th of November commemorations are attended on such a scale as they have been between 2014 and 2018. I, I suspect they won't, but the diminution of public consciousness will happen quite slowly. A part of the reason for this is that it just remains that 1914-18 experience is just one of the worst things that's happened in modern British history. It affected almost every household in the British Isles. And part of the interest in the war has come from below. It hasn't come from academic historians. It's become from ordinary, if you like, non-academic members of the, of the general public becoming more interested generally in their family history. And if, as soon as people get into their family history... Pretty quickly they find in most families that something terrible happened between 1914 and 1918 to that generation. As long as people remain interested in the history of their communities in the British Isles and the centenary commemorations have helped with that, I think there will continue to be a lot of interest in this subject. This was LSE's Professor David Stevenson and this was the first episode of Our Histories. Thank you for listening.